Okay, so let us begin. We're, it is 5784 in the Jewish calendar, uh, 2023 in the uh, Gregorian calendar. <laughs> and we are beginning a new cycle of um, Torah learning. You know, Rabbi Sachs mentions in one of his books, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, that he was speaking with, uh, I believe it was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop asked him whether he'd be interested in joining the church in their uh, cycle of reading the Torah, or reading the Bible, as he put it. And Rabbi Sachs said he would be happy to, except he would make one adjustment. He said, we don't read the Torah. Kriyasa Torah, which is usually translated as reading the Torah, really means to announce or pronounce the Torah. And the difference is that um, we view learning Torah not as a purely solitary act of, you know, sitting on your couch, reading a book, etc. But it's a interactive um, experience. <clears throat> um, and not only that, but... You know, one of the things that I really enjoy particularly about Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's last several books is they're actually <clears throat> essays taken from weekly discussions that he had with his, um, I guess, the people who were working with him. And he really stresses the idea that we're meant to study Torah as Torah's Chaim, as instructions for living. That's what the word Torah means. Torah means instruction. Instructions for what? Instructions for living. Um, and we'll see right as we start, actually, um, how critical that is to an understanding of the text. <clears throat> understanding that it's not here as a historical document. It's not here to teach us history. It's not here as a scientific document to teach us science, but it's here to teach us instructions for living. And really what we're meant to spend our week, and particularly our Shabbos, doing is gleaning those instructions for living from the weekly Torah portion. So let's begin with Bereshus in the beginning. And what we'll do is we'll just kind of read through the text. Um, we're going to stay pretty text focused um, and try not to get too um, midrashic or off topic in the text, though we may get off topic in some discussions. Um, and I think being the nature of the world as it is on October 10th of 2023, with everything that is happening in Israel uh, at the moment, I think it's uniquely appropriate uh, to study this particular parsha, as we will see. So, we are told, Bereshis bara Elohim, in the beginning, God created... The heavens and the earth. Now, Rashi in his commentary explains, based on a number of different things, but primarily based on the fact that the word beracious needs to be, it's an adjective, so it needs to be attached to some sort of a noun. In the beginning of what? The what is missing. Beracious. It just says beracious bara, the next word he created is a verb. And Bereshus is not an adverb. Though Rashi does suggest you may read the verse as, in the beginning of God's creating, the earth was empty and deserted. Tohu vavohu, the next verse. The Rashi points out very clearly and without getting into detail, that actually the order of creation is not really what we're discussing here. Everything is out of order. So then the question becomes, so what exactly is the Torah telling us? If it's not coming to tell us kind of what happened and how it happened, what is it telling us? Well, Rashi actually in his commentary raises another very interesting question, and that is if Torah is instructions for living, Torah Shayim, this is the way one of the commentaries on Rashi interprets Rashi, then you would assume that the instructions for living are the mitzvahs, the 613 commandments. And the first mitzvah, the first commandment in the Torah that is given to the Jewish people as a whole, for sure, doesn't appear actually until we get to Parshas Bo, until the mitzvah of Kiddush HaChodesh, of sanctifying the new moon and the creating of the Jewish calendar. So if, if the purpose of Torah is merely to give us instructions for living via the mitzvahs, then this entire 
book of Torah is really superfluous, extraneous. It's not there for any to tell us any of those mitzvahs. While there are some mitzvahs that are mentioned, for example, the mitzvah of bris milah, the mitzvah of circumcision, and the mitzvah of gid hanasha, the mitzvah not to eat from the sciatica, <clears throat> those are mentioned, but really they're mentioned in the context of things that are, for example, commands to Avraham in particular, or to Yaakov and his children in particular but not to the Jewish people. The Jewish people's obligation to do bris milah, for example, to do circumcision, comes from in Parsha Shmini when it says, and on his eighth day, the eighth day of a, of a male child, you will circumcise him. We're not obligated because of the fact that it was a command given to Abraham, though that component of it is there as well, which is why at a circumcision, we actually make two different brachas, right? Um, we make one bracha, Asher Kedishanu B'Mitzvosav. For example, Asher Kedishanu B'Mitzvosav, that God sanctified us with his commandments, v'tivanu al-hamila, and give us the command of circumcision. But we also make a separate bracha, a separate blessing, l'hachniso bivriso shal Avraham avinu, to bring the child into the covenant of Avraham. Because those are really two separate, though simultaneous things that are happening with a breast. That's Rashi's question. And Rashi's answer, which is so profoundly appropriate for this very time, is that the purpose of this entire part of the Torah is to establish the Jewish people's claim to the land of Israel. And more than that, what you really need to understand is that the Torah is really given, for example, if we take a look at the end of the Parsha that we finished with, Parsha Bracha, it ends with this kind of climactic moment of Moshe being on the edge of the land and not being able to go in. Right. Meaning the whole Torah is really the story of the journey to Israel. That's what it's really right. about. It's not just yeah. a random detail. Oh, by the way, this establishes God's right to give the people, give the people the land. But that's really the direction that the Torah is taking. The direction that the Torah is taking is to the land of Israel. That's what it's about. In fact, Nachmanides in his commentary, Ramban, goes so far as to say that the mitzvahs that we perform nowadays outside of the land are really kind of only practice for yeah. the mitzvahs that we would do in the land when we are sovereign, etc., in the land. Um, that's how far Nachmanides, Ramban, takes it. But, so that's really the direction that the Torah is establishing. And so, as Rashi explains... Based on the Midrash, there will come a time when the nations of the world will say that you are thieves, that you have stolen this land, Listimatem. That's that is that is really you know, it's it's fascinating how, you know, throughout uh, throughout Tanakh, throughout particularly Midrash and Gemara, there's all of these discussions of, of the centrality of the land of Israel. You know, it, it plays a central part in the Purim story. And even though the Perm story seems to have nothing to do with the land of Israel, right. but there's that whole discussion between Ahasuerus and Esther, where Ahasuerus tells her, I'll give you up to half of the land. And, and our sages say, oh, that means Israel. everything except Israel. How do they see that as coming into the picture? Well, aside from getting into the historical context of that story, the crazy thing is that this tiny piece of land, it's tiny. Israel is, is tiny. The size of New Jersey. The size of New Jersey, right? This tiny piece of land has been the focus of human history pretty much for the last 3,000 years. And, and we're talking about empires, massive empires. We're talking about whether we're talking about the Babylonian and the Greek empires or even more recently in the, you know, the, the Crusades and how much that was a part of, you know, of, Western history, right? And right. the last century, really, 
how much Israel has played a part in in world in geopolitics is so disproportionate, it seems, to both the size of the land and even if you think about it, the resources of the right, land. Right. It's not like it's a particularly resource-rich piece of land. Okay, you can argue it's a strategic piece because it's kind of the bridge between Africa, Asia, and Europe. Right. You know, fine. But even that seems a little bit, you know, putting Still way too much yeah, value in that. And yet it's the focus of pretty much every UN session you know, is about Israel. I'm obviously that's a little hyperbolic, but you know, it's just it's crazy. It really does it from a simple, you know, standard logical sense. It doesn't make any sense that that that's the case, and yet it is. And and why is that? Be, well, we're gonna. Why is that? I don't have a good answer to that other than the fact that the Torah is telling us that this is the land that's meant for the Jewish people and history really surrounds the Jewish people as much as we can look at history from other perspectives. But ultimately, we see ourselves <clears throat> as kind of the focus of the, of the world um, right. uh, and its ultimate purpose. And so, of course, that our land is going to be that focus. Right. Okay. So, is there... Is there a particular a particular lesson in the idea that, like, is like the land of Israel doesn't come easy? Well, we don't see that particularly here. The Gemara actually in Masachas Brachos mentions that there are three things that are required by means of Yisurin, by means of suffering or difficulty: Torah, Israel, and Olam Haba. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely part of this story. Though we'll get a little, you get a little bit more into that when you get to the book of Devarim, which really focuses in on the Jewish people crossing over into the land and their mission in the land. Um, <clears throat> so at, to finish the midrash, the midrash says God says that yes, you know I create, I am the creator, therefore I am the one who owns it, and I can choose to whom I give it. I gave it temporarily. This is how the Midrash understands it. I gave it temporarily to the nations who were there at the time. But when the time came for me to give it to the people who I really wanted to give it to, and as God later on says in the book, when the time came that I was disgusted with the inhabitants who were there previously. So I took it from them and gave it to the people to whom I wanted. And Yes, there are all sorts of, you know, um, historical and political explanations as to why the land of Israel should belong to the Jewish people, based on, you know, looking at what actually happened with the Balfour Declaration, etc., etc. But the ultimate answer to that question is, it's ours because God gave it to us. That so is really the Torah the starts off by talking about God creating the world in order to show God created the world, therefore he can give Israel to the nation that he chooses to give it to. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, you know, Nachmanides actually, Ramban actually takes a little bit of a different tact in understanding the Midrash than the way that perhaps Rashi does, the way that we explained it from Rashi about how the Torah should begin with the mitzvahs. Um, he understands the Midrash as questioning why the Torah discusses creation at all if it is so mysterious and so obscure. You know, it's interesting when we were in LA, um, remember at the Kiddush, there was someone talking to me and the questions that he was asking me were really about this question. You know, why did God put this in the Torah if people are going to totally misunderstand what it means? Like the story of creation. The story of creation. And what we're, what, we're, what we're meant to take away from Rashi and Ramban and all of these commentaries is to understand the Torah is not here to give us, again, history or science or even metaphysics. That's not the purpose. The purpose is instructions for living. And so we have to read the text with that ear to hear the instructions that the text is giving us. And I believe the instructions that come out from this verse very clearly are 
the centrality of the land of Israel to our national destiny. That is really what the Torah is telling us in this very opening verse. Wow. Um, okay. So we're told, Bereshis bara Elohim, that name Elohim is very unique. We're going to see multiple names of God used throughout the Torah. Um, it's going to be used 32 times in the first seven days of creation in the next several. That specific name. That specific name is used 32 times until we get to the second creation story, which we'll have to discuss when we get there. But in the second creation story, a very different name is used. Hashem Elohim is used in the second creation story. And of course, Chazal, our sages, being very sensitive to the text, make note of that. And as Rashi comments here, that's to teach us that initially God's purpose, God created the world with the attribute of din, with the attribute of judgment, which is what Elohim represents. The word is used in the sense of a judge. Elohim lo tekalel, do not curse a judge, is used later on in Parshas Mishpatim. So it means the judge or the power might be a better uh, a better translation. So initially God wanted to create the world with this mida or this attribute, this perspective of din, of judgment, but he saw that the world was not able to, um, to survive and therefore he joined together with it the mida of rachamim, the mida of mercy, which Hashem, the four-letter name of God, yod ke vav represents that aspect. And that's why later on, he's referred to as Hashem Elohim, mm -hmm. which uh, I guess we will get a little off topic here, um, which raises a very fascinating um, question. Um, and I guess in this sense, it is a philosophical or metaphysical question. And that is the purpose of, of creation um, and how God deals with creation. You know, many of the commentaries are bothered by the question of the, on this midrash that I thought we have a principle, and it's David Amelach, King David, says that in Tehillim, Olam Chesed Yibana, the world was created as an act of kindness. Well, if the world was created as an act of kindness, then why do we say that God initially created the world with din, with judgment? And the basic understanding or answer to that question is the understanding that we are here in this world to, so to speak, earn our way. Now, the truth is we can never earn our way, which is what the Midrash means. We can never survive earning our way. We never earn our existence in the first place. But our purpose here in existence is to, in some measure, earn our way. Um, as Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Lutzato, puts it in one of his books, Dust Funos, he says, if you are given something for free, you're, you, there's a certain amount of shame attached to it. You, right. you, you feel like you, right? you feel like you haven't earned it. So right. therefore, we're put in a place where we have free will and the ability to earn our way. Um, however, it's a little bit of a catch-22, which is what the Midrash is saying. We cannot survive with pure din, because we never earn it in the first place, earn our existence. And so therefore, it needs that, it needs to get started in some way. And that is the rachamim, that is God's mercy and God's life-bearing gift um, that is required for creation. I also want to point out um, the word bara that is used here is a very specific word, and it only appears, if I'm remembering correctly, three times in the creation story. Um, it appears here in this very first verse. It appears okay. on day number five, and it appears on day number six. Um, and Nachmanides in his commentary really uh, points this concept out, and he says that the term bara, we have different Hebrew words that mean to create. We have the word bara, we have the word yotzer, creator, which really is better translated as fashioner, the one who forms. Right? Okay. We have ose, the maker. Right? These are all different Hebrew words we use that mean create or make. But they each have a little bit of a slightly different connotation. Okay. And the word bore means to create something from nothing. 
or as is known in um, in kind of scientific or philosophical circles, ex nihilo, to create something from nothing. Never heard that term before. <clears throat> um, and that type of creation really only happens once, maybe twice or three times, as we'll see, in the story, in the history of creation. It's only that initial, so to speak, Big Bang moment, right, where you have something created from nothing. Right. From that point on, though, it's just the formation like of that Hashem material. Like when Adam's uh, rib and turned it into Chava. For example, right? Um, we're going to see the two other places. Uh, one is the Taninim Hagedolim, the great sea creatures, which uh, is the Leviathan, which we're not really going to discuss so much, but basically mm. the idea is... When we say that God created heaven and earth, we're not discussing heaven and earth as we're familiar with it, because those only really appear in the story later. really means spiritual matter and physical matter. And the truth is, we don't even discuss the spiritual matter pretty much at all. The, the story that? goes because it's not important for the story. Right? What happens in heaven with angels and all that stuff? It's beautiful, it's Kabbalistic, it's, you know, fancy and esoteric, but practically for our lives, for the instructions for living, we don't need we to have know to that. Live in the we don't need world. to know that. What's, right. you know, how things are working behind the scenes, we don't need to really know that. We just need to know what's happening down on earth. And that's the next verse. Viharet, and as for the physical earth, or rather the physical matter, here's the story of the physical matter. Um, but we don't even really discuss that. Um, but there are actually two forms of physical matter and two forms of spiritual matter. Um, there's general spiritual matter, general physical matter, and then there is a different type of physical matter, which is what is referred to in Midrashic terms as the Liviasan, which is the physical matter of the future world, right? Which is why we say, right, that we're going to live you know, in Olam Haba, in the Sukkas Oro Shel Leviasan, right? Yes. In the Sukkah made out of the skin of the Leviasan. So for those of us who are fish phobic, <laughs> right? Mm, why, would you want, why would you want to sit inside a fish? Obviously, the Midrash is, is not meant to be understood. Literally, the point is rather that there is some sort of different type of physical existence that is, mm -hmm. that is going to be at that time. And that's why the word Bria is used there, because it's a different physical matter. And the other place, of course, is the creation of the human soul. The Nishama is also a very unique piece of spiritual matter. But without getting too much into detail, that's the basic idea. Okay, so that's our first verse. Bereshis Barel Bukim. In the beginning, God brought into existence out of nothing, God the creator god the the power behind creation the word elohim actually has also a little bit of an additional connotation as the god of nature in fact gematria the numerical value of the word elohim is hateva the nature right um and so when we talk about god in terms of the manifestation of god in in nature we use the term elohim which is of course why in this story the creation of the universe, we're going to use the term Elohim right. because we're discussing the creation of nature. He created spiritual matter and physical matter. And we are told the Haaretz and the earth or physical matter, Hayisatohu Vavohu. It was usually it's, uh, I mean, the way that I was taught as a kid was empty and deserted. That's how it is. Uh, I don't know if you were taught the same. I don't remember the uh, word. Meaning just... of, of, of the words tohu vavohu. But the, the better translation of the terms tohu vavohu would be tohu means it was wondrous or, or almost ununderstandable. So this initial matter that was brought into existence, and, and the fascinating thing is that, you know, um, Hawking, Stephen Hawking actually kind of discusses this in A Brief History of Time, that initial moment of creation and matter in its state at that initial moment, science has no way to describe it. 
because it doesn't really follow the laws of physics as we're familiar with. It's only once it begins to form into the universe that we are familiar with that the laws of physics actually start to apply. So tohu is the sense of, tohe means to wonder or to be amazed, right? In other words, it was this matter that was initially brought into existence was just, to a certain degree, incomprehensible. But vavohu, bohu, means there's something in it. But it was matter. So um, on the one hand, we're being told it's ununderstandable, but understand that it is bohu. It is matter. It is something. Something, but it's just beyond our comprehension. Right. Um, but not not in the sense that, let's say, we would describe God as beyond our comprehension. It is the matter that we see in the universe around us, but in a form that is that so are. compressed or, or unformed that... It's difficult to wrap the mind around. Yeah, I think I was always taught that sohu meant like nothingness. Uh, well, that's right. So the problem with that is we're not talking about nothingness because we're talking about after, right? We're talking right. about after Bria, after the creation ex nihilo, after right. something is created, right? Right. Um, and really, this is kind of a theme of creation. And it's worth pausing here and, and focusing on this for a minute, because remember, we discussed this idea of um, this idea of Torah as Torah's Chaim, as instructions for living. Right. And one of the essences of Torah is this idea that nature or creation to a certain degree is chaotic. Tohu can be described as chaos, that primal chaos. And the story of history and the story of God is the story of putting form to that chaos. And that's kind of how we're, to a certain degree, meant to look at our lives. Our lives are very chaotic. And I mean, again, you know, just kind of look at, you know, the news and we really get that sense of how chaotic the world is. Um, no matter how, you know, we had... Avi here, right? Just, you know, as a little kid, you, you think of the world as this very kind of solid, oh yeah, everything works well and whatever. And then right. you grow up and you realize to a certain degree, we're all, is we're all just figuring things out as we go, you know? Um, and the world kind of exists almost on a knife's edge, you know? How, I mean, really, uh, it, to, be, to be honest, if I didn't believe in God, this world would be a frightening terrifying. place, a I terrifying place. I mean, like nuclear nuclear, are... nuclear war is is inevitable almost, right. <laughs> you know, uh, without him, you know. Um, and so this idea that creation is initially this place of chaos, and how God gives form to that chaos, and as we'll see, we human beings are part of that process, which we'll see in the second creation story, which I mentioned earlier, that is part of the message of Torah. Um, you know, they, they say, <laughs> they say about um, Michelangelo, that Michelangelo was asked how he made all of these amazing sculptures. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, it's all there in the, in the marble or granite. I just, just uncover everything else. So. Right. Um, and, and that's part of this idea of how in the chaos, everything is there. Right. Think about that initial matter that we talked about. It's all there compressed. Right. If you take white noise, right. White noise is noise basically of all of the different spectrum of noise, all of the okay. different frequencies. Right. If you take white noise, you really have every single symphony contained in that white noise technically right interesting right okay. so long as you can remove the other parts it's there right right and that's kind of michelangelo's point michelangelo's point is that these beautiful things that we see in creation they're part of the nature of chaos but in order to access them we have to give form to them that's our job 
you know, and that's what the Torah is telling us right here. Vechoshech al penei tahom, and there was darkness on the face of the deep. Um, there's not a very good, um, simple explanation for that. Many of the commentaries go into kind of a Greek philosophy style explanation, talking about how the world is composed of four isodos, four fundamental elements, fire, water, earth, and wind. And this is referring actually to the fire, which primal fire is actually seen not as light, but as darkness. Interesting. Um, okay. Okay. Um, Elohim now, I'm going to translate this in a very specific way. Um, this is not the way that the Targum, for example, the Aramaic translation, translates it. The Aramaic translation translated Ruach Elohim as a wind or spirit from God. Um, but other Rishonim, including Ramban and Rabbeinu Bachai and others, without getting into names too much, um, understand that when we want to discuss something as being supernatural, we call it godly, right? Right. So when we say Ruach Elohim, right, we don't mean a wind from God. We mean a godly, godly wind, wind. In, the sense of, in the sense of something supernatural, okay. not wind as you and I are familiar with it. Mirachefas al-Pneamayim was hovering over the face of the deep. Vayomer Elohim Yehior. And God said, let there be light. Vayihior, and there was light. A um, couple of things to take note of over here. First of all, the idea that God creates not by doing, but by saying. Throughout this story, in fact, our sages point out 10 different times. One of them is actually voracious, which is not our discussion right now. It's not the word Vayomer and he said, but there are 10 different utterances in creation. Right. Why would we describe God as creating by means of speech? Why wouldn't we describe it the way that we would describe a human being when created that you do instead of speak? Right. Well, a couple different explanations are given. One is this idea that, well, everything is so easy for God. What for you and I would be hard work for him. It's like just speaking, right. you know, abrac abracadabra, mm -hmm. which literally means translated. If you understand those words as Aramaic, I will create as I speak. Abra, abara, bara is that word. Kidabra, dibur, is speech. So <laughs> abracadabra means I will create with my speech, which wow. is. It's interesting that that's how we understand magic, right? If you want to say doing something easily, you right. say, oh, it's like magic. Right, right. Right? Um, so, you know, that's one idea is that, you know, God creates like magic. You know, it's all, it's, it's simple for him. That's one. But the other thing is, and I think that this is perhaps the more profound and again, Taurus Chaim, life altering and, and, life lesson for us is the idea that just as God creates with speech, we being in the image of God also create with speech. And the Torah is telling us that from the very beginning, right? You have to understand the Torah is telling us the power of speech. speech. And, and, you know, I mean, we talked about this a little bit on Yom Kippur. Um, were you there? Oh no, you weren't there. Um, how history, particularly recent history, has shown us the power of speech, right? I mean, we have seen nations, economies, etc., rise and fall by means of speech, right? Right? I mean, sure, there's action to it as well, but the driver behind it is speech, right? And when you walk out that door in the morning and you pass by someone on the street and you say good morning to them with a smile, you have the power to create a beautiful a day morning. for them. A good morning. Right. right. It's like, oh, where is that? Um, oh, it's, oh, my favorite movie, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> right. So when Frodo in, uh, meets uh, Gandalf, right, and he says to him, good morning. And Gandalf says to him, uh, sorry, no, it's not Frodo, it's Bilbo. When Bilbo meets Gandalf and Gandalf says to him, well, what do you mean? 
Do you mean it is a good morning? Do you mean you're wishing me a good morning? Do you right. mean, you, right? What do you mean when you say good morning to somebody? Well, one idea is you're actually creating the good morning for them. Hmm. Right? Here, good morning. Have a good morning. <laughs> yes, please. Thank <laughs> you. you. Oh, please and thank but you. But really, we do, right? I mean, we, we've all had that experience where someone smiles to us, someone says good morning to us, or, or just a kind word or a supportive word, and it really lifts us up. And it changes your right? day. And it changes your day. Um, and the Torah is reminding us right here in the very beginning, God creates with speech, just like the human being, and the human being just so creates with speech as well. Um, so he said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated between the light and the darkness. Now, it's a very, many of the psukim in the creation story are very obscure and difficult to understand. But let's see if we can at least glean some um message for living from this verse. So it says, God saw that the light was good, and he separated between the light and the darkness. Well, the simple understanding of that, um, which is actually how Rashi translates it simply, is he saw that the light was good, and therefore he didn't want it to exist, to coexist with darkness, because then you're not benefiting from light. And so therefore he separated between the two. Okay. Um, the other idea which Rashi says, which I want to build on, even though it's midrashic, but I want to uh, I want to mention it because I think it really teaches us a very important lesson: is that God, the light that we're discussing over here, is the what's known as the the or haganas, the light that is hidden. There was a primordial light, um, but God saw that it was good, meaning it was too good. It was too good to be used in the world as we know it. And so he separated it and he put it away. He hid it away, so to speak. And that's why we refer to it as the Or HaGanos, the hidden light, for the future, for Olam Haba, for the world to come. Why is that important? We're going to see, and what's fascinating is I actually just saw this in Rabbeinu Bahai today. Um, every day of creation, something goes wrong. Okay. So he actually fascinatingly doesn't mention this first day, though he does hint to it elsewhere. But on day number one, the light has to be hidden for later. Right? That's you can call that something going wrong. Yeah. Right? On day number two, the heavens and the earth are separated, which is the origin of Machlokas. We'll see this more when we get there. Right? There's the that's the first time where creation is divided right day number three the earth is told to bring forth a certain type of product and it brings forth a different product right eight puri osepri originally the tree was supposed to taste like the fruit but the earth brings forth f- trees that produce fruit but don't taste like the fruit well we'll get there when we discuss it day number four the moon complains that you can't have two luminaries right and so she has to be made smaller Day number five, the Taninim Hagdolim, those those sea creatures that we were discussing the before, the Liviasad, they have to be, right, originally there were two of them, um, and God has to, um, God has to, um, trying to think of the right English word, Lissares, which means to make infertile. Um, I can't think of a good English word. Um, he has to make the male one infertile and he has to take away the female one in order that they don't breed because if they would breed, they would destroy the world. This is a midrash, right? And that female one is the one who's saved for the future, the sukkas orosh alaviyasa, somewhere around. Uh, it's a midrash. And one thing, to be taken literally. Yes, one thing we're going to see over and over again is that midrashim are there to teach us a lesson or a moral or, or a, they're there to provide something not there to be taken as literal but anyhow that's day number five day number six well day number six is when things really went wrong 
right? Because that's the day that Adam is created and he eats from, from the tree that he's not supposed to eat from. Every single day of creation, something Wait, goes wrong. What about Shabbos? Let's leave Shabbos out. Okay. Okay? Because Shabbos technically does count as one of the days of creation, but also does it. We okay. don't talk about the seven days of creation. We talk about Sheshes Yimei Bereshes. Oh, okay. Right, the six days right, of creation. Right. Okay, fair enough. Um, but that's we'll we'll hopefully get a little more into that when we get discuss you know day number seven. But on every single day of creation, something went wrong. Right. What's the moral? What are we being told? Let's look at it this way. Okay. Right. God tells the earth, we're going to see on day three, God tells the earth to do one thing and it does something else. Right. What does that mean? Earth doesn't have free will. Right. Okay. So how does the earth do different than what God tells it to do? Good question. <laughs> okay. What do you think? Obviously, what we're being told is there is perfection. In other words, the way that, so to speak, God as a perfect being wants things to be. But then there's reality. Okay. Right? And reality as of yet has not reached perfection. Reality is in an imperfect state. For, for a very important purpose. For the purpose of the world being developed through human beings and free will. But in, so in all of these midrashim, right, right? We don't mean that creation rebelled, right? What we mean is we point out the challenge of God wanting to create a perfect universe, but needing to create an imperfect one for there to be human beings and free will. Because we couldn't exist if it was a perfect world. Correct. We couldn't exist with free will. Correct. Right. And so in all of these situations, right, the Or Haganas, the light that is hidden. So the Midrash says, if you use that light, you could see from one end of the universe to the other. What, what does the Midrash mean? It mean This Or Haganas is this sense of ultimate understanding. Imagine that you perceived everything that was happening in the universe at, all, at every moment. And when, when I say at every moment, I don't mean everywhere in one second. I mean every second in history, backwards and forwards. Imagine you perceived all no, of that at once. I don't want to imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> right? <clears throat> That's the Orhaganos. That's right. the hidden light. A time will come when we are able in, in the future, in Olam Haba, to, so to speak, live like God and have that perception. Right. But in the world as we know it, we cannot live with that. Right. Right. As uh, Rabbi Orlowick once said to me so beautifully, he said, there is one supercomputer that runs the universe. And I have no idea how it works. Right. We're going to have questions. Right. Right. As we discussed this morning. Right. Why do bad things happen to good people? We're going to have those questions. Right. Right. And, and the answer to those questions is, I don't know. Right. There will be a time when we'll know the answer. But at this moment in time, which is what God basically says to Moshe, when Moshe asks the question, the way that that our sages understand the conversation between God and Moshe after the Chet Egal, after the sin of the golden calf, when Moshe says, Ha'ini nas kivodecha, show me your glory, right? And God says, Kilo yirani ha'adam v'chai, no one can see me and survive, right? The way that our sages understand that conversation is Moshe was asking the question of Tzadik Virala. Why are there good people? And why can't someone see And according that to at least one person, one explanation, the Gemara, God said, I can't tell you the answer to that question. Because you can't live as a human being and know the answer to that question. Because that takes away your free will. The, those two cannot ex coexist. Right. right. We won't live as human beings in Olam Haba. Olam Haba is a totally different creation. Right. Right. And so God's answer to him is, I can't... <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I, I can't tell you the answer. It's, right. life. That does not compute. <laughs> right? Right. It's, it's not. Um, and yeah, we will have those questions. And that's where emuna, the concept of faith, though faith might be a little bit of a, of a 
inaccurate translation. It more means maybe trust or confidence, right? In no in in this belief that I know that God exists, right? And I know that he has, he has a purpose, he has a plan. And so even though I can't see it, I can't understand it, I can't explain it, but I'm confident in it. Right. That's what really what emuna is about. Well, really, the word bitachon fits better there. Bitachon is the way that the Chazon Ish puts it. Bitachon is emuna put into practice. Right. Right. But bitachon doesn't mean trust. Yeah. Um, bitachon means trust. Right. Or uh, security. Right. Actually, interestingly, in Israel, when they talk about the security forces, they are kochota bitachon. Oh. Right. Um, those are the security forces in Israel. Um, so bitachon is, is a sense of security. So, um, as I once heard it put so beautifully by Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, he said, bitachon is that feeling that you feel like you're a child in your, in its mother's arms, that feeling that God is cradling you in your arm, in his arms. That's, that's bitachon, right? Total security. Right. Right. That that child has no worries in the world. Right. Wow. Right. That's it. Feels totally and completely secure. But right? isn't that what we need to feel about this concept? That. Um, I mean that would be a really high level, sure. Right. Uh, but sometimes. But practically. Sometimes emuna it's more emuna. Right. 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 Sometimes it's more you know. I believe it. I you know, but you know. I know I'm going to hold on to that belief, but I'm uncomfortable. Which brings us to the third verse. Uh, actually, not the third. We're actually at the fifth verse, but the third one that we're really pausing and taking note of. Vaikra Elokim or Yom. So God called the light day, Vlachoshech Kara Laila, and He called the darkness night. Vaihi Erev Vaihi It was evening, and it was morning. Yom Echad, day one. Let's pay attention to a couple things here. Okay. You know, one thing I really want to um, stress in this journey that we're on is mm-hmm. looking at Torah um, the way that, that um, the Chovo Salavavos puts it. He says, imagine you, you got a document from outer space. Right? right. You would analyze every word to try and figure out what it's trying to say. Right? So... Listen to Torah with that type of an ear, right? Listen to Torah with an ear for one second. Why is that word used? Why not that word, right? right? Um, did God write Torah? Did God not write Torah? That's not our discussion. Yes, he did, but that's not our discussion. But listen to it with that type of an ear, and you'll find such deep meaning in it. Um, so I want to do that for a moment. God called the day, the light day, which means the light is not day, right? If I call someone something, that means that's not what it is. That's what I call it, Okay. right? So in other words, day and night are independent of light and darkness. We just happen to call day, the light day and the dark night which, by the way, gets to that whole question of how are there days and nights before there are a sun and a moon and stars, right? Right. Obviously, the days and nights that we're discussing over here are not the day and night that you and I are familiar with. Right. Right? And that's what it means. God called the light day, and he called the night darkness, uh, the, the darkness night, meaning there exists some concept called day and night, that there are seven of those in the course of creation, right? But they're not necessarily 24-hour periods or cycles of light and darkness as you and I are familiar with them. 
Right. Okay. Right. So that gets kind of into the whole question of, you know, the age of the universe and all of those issues, which I, I'd rather not get pursue, right get into right now, because I want to kind of stay focused on the text and and what it teaches us. And also maybe some other time. No, but also remember, it's not here to tell us scientific fact. Right. It's scientifically accurate because it's true, but it's not telling us scientific fact. Right. And, and it's very important to differentiate between those two. Okay. Yom Echad. Right. What's the problem? Right. There's two types of ones. There's one and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, etc. If you're counting, right, yeah. and you're, I, I deliberately translated it this way. I didn't say the first day. I said day one. Okay. Right. Now, in English, you don't really hear a difference between those two. Okay. But in Hebrew, the first day would be Yom Rishon. Oh. Right. Or as we're going to see, right, Yom Shini. Yom Shlishi. Okay. I see where you're going. Right. Yom Echad, right, doesn't, that's not the first day, that's day one. Right. Why? Well, the simple answer to that question is, until there exists a second day, you can't talk about first. Okay, interesting. Right? It's kind of a, a, a mathematical perspective on it, right? Or, you know, it's a little bit mind-bending logic, right? Right. But until a second day exists, you only have one day. Right. right day one. Okay. Once a second day exists, you can talk about, oh, today is the second day relative to the first day. Right? Um, the, other, the other possibility, which is kind of the more midrashic approach to it, is that it's on this day that we basically really don't have any serious problems yet. Um even though we discussed the the light being hidden away for a different time, right. the problems in creation are going to really start tomorrow on okay. day number two. Um, and we'll see that as we get there. Okay. Um, but Yom Echad is the day in which God is one, meaning there is a sense that on that first day, everything was fine. Right? It all went Once we, from there. It all went down the... <laughs> It all went to hell from there because, as we're going to see, hell is created on day two. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, uh, but that's the the um, yom echad. All right, we'll stop there for today because you know I think we've spent quite a fair amount of time. Okay. Uh, even though we've only gotten through about one day, but that'll have to do for now. <laughs>